Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Jake Steiner. Jake is the founder of the website endmyopia.org. He shares information on that site that's ha- that helped him to change his vision of severe short-sightedness back to 2020 vision. Jake, thanks for coming on for an episode for today. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about myopia, or that's the easier word that maybe some people might know is uh, short-sightedness or nearsightedness. And yeah, as I alluded to in the intro there, that you used to wear glasses and now you don't wear glasses. And I think that's going to be very interesting to find out like that you can change your vision and, and improve your vision. And that's the topic we're going to be going through today. So if you wouldn't mind just for listeners to begin with, could you explain what is myopia and what causes it? That's a perfect way to start. Um, the, the fallacy is, and one of the things that's really, I think, keeping more people from exploring their eyesight is that we're all kind of told through institutional authority that myopia is some kind of mysterious genetic condition or health condition, something that can only be treated by the, these glasses prescriptions, where the reality is that, that myopia is just a refractive state. So that means your eyes have adjusted to your environment. That's both your environment as far as a lot of close-up. Myopia is developing as as a phenomenon much more quickly in places where people are doing a lot of reading, where the education system is more advanced, now where we're getting into more screen use. Um, And then there's the part of myopia that's progressive, where you go from just a little bit of short-sightedness to significant short-sightedness. And that's caused by the lens wear itself. And as a little bit of background, because this is such a weird topic, the best place I think to start with validating this kind of information is on Google Scholar. Uh, I'm not sure how much your listeners go there, but it's one of my favorite sites on the internet, scholar.google.com. If you search for uh, near-induced transient myopia, NITM, that describes this whole phenomenon of first getting short-sightedness. Uh, it's also called pseudomyopia. If you type in pseudomyopia in Google Scholar, you'll get tens of thousands of search results of peer-reviewed clinical studies discussing this. And then if you search for lens-induced myopia, you'll find a ton of science discussing how the lenses you wear to fix your short-sightedness actually cause more of it. So yeah, that's interesting already that you've mentioned that um, gen- that's when I was doing some background research around this too, genetics seems to be a big factor that they say is involved why someone is short-sighted or nearsighted. Um, but also then what you've just said there, that pseudo-myopia, what, what exactly is that then? Yeah, and, and, and by the way, I, whenever somebody says to me genetic, I'm already, the red flags are already all over the place because we didn't have a myopia problem even 50 years ago, nearly to the extent that we do today. So it doesn't make any logical sense. For example, in, uh, in uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, it's close to 90% of school-aged children have myopia now, just in the very recent past. So th- this whole idea that it's some kind of mysterious genetic condition, really, I get frustrated by that explanation. Um, definitely not the case. Now, pseudomyopia 
great starting point. And it's funny that it's called pseudomyopia. And I really love for people to go to Google Scholar so they can firsthand see that there's so much peer-reviewed clinical science that is referenced by that term. And basically what it means is there's a circular muscle in your eye. It's called the ciliary muscle that controls a curved lens at the front of your eye that is moved based on how close or how far you're looking at objects. And the closer you're looking at an object, the more that ciliary muscle curves that lens in your eye for close-up vision. So basically what happens when you're looking at something at screen distance, 30 centimeters, 40, 60 centimeters, that muscle is tense to shape the lens you can see up close. And the biological design of this is obviously that we're intended to mostly look at a distance and up close to a lesser amount of time. So the muscle is relaxed at a distance, it's tense up close. And the, the unintended side effect of a modern life is that now we spend hours and hours and hours staring at a fixed focal plane very close to us, keeping that muscle in this specific tense state for extended periods of time. Now what happens is if you're reading a book for five hours and then you look up into a distance, that muscle doesn't immediately fully relax. So it stays tense. And when it's tense, that lens is shaped for close-up vision, making your distance vision blurry. And that's basically pseudomyopia. Okay. And then compare that to the other one that you mentioned, the lens-induced uh, myopia. Lens-induced. Lens-induced myopia happens. So that's also, and again, like I love Google Scholar because it's the, for me, always the acid test on, is this a real thing worth investigating further? Um, lens-induced myopia is when, Pseudomyopia, the, land, the, the, the muscle has spasmed a little bit. It doesn't fully release. Your lens is shaped still for close-up. And what the, you go to the optometrist and they check your eyes with the eye chart. Yeah, you have myopia. They don't call it pseudomyopia. And they give you glasses, minus lenses. And what those do is they move the focal point further back in your eye. It's basically compensating for that muscle spasm. And not fixing the muscle spasm. It's just... Because the muscle has you set for close-up, the lens moves the light back to give you distance vision again. And the problem with this, I'm going to try to really summarize a short, short version of this, is your eye adjusts in length over time to give you perfect close-up vision and perfect distance vision. Uh, it's called the axial length of the eye. And throughout your life, the axial length of your eye continually adjusts based on environmental stimulus. So your eye grows longer and shorter, and there's, there's a good amount of clinical evidence for this as well, based on the stimulus. And the stimulus is the focal plane that the eye is seeing. And the minus lens changes that focal plane. It moves the light further back in your eye. So what happens is the eye goes, whoops, I'm too short, and it elongates. Elongated eye is lens-induced myopia. Because now when you, when you take those glasses off, the eyeball is longer, right? And the light no, can lo, no longer focus on the retina where it's supposed to. It's basically ignoring the muscle spasm and putting in a quick fix instead of addressing the, the muscle spasm with the minus lens that causes your eye to continually grow longer and longer. Yeah, so, you know, and that's where I think a lot of people who get diagnosed with um, short-sightedness 
one of the concerns that they have is that, well, wearing glasses actually make it worse over time. And then I, my prescription is just, just got to get stronger and stronger. And is this what you're alluding to that um, you have the spasm in the muscle in the front of your eye, which is creating the short sightedness, but then you try put a patch over it, which is the lens correction, which then over time itself induces further short sightedness. So wearing glasses can actually make you more short sighted over time. Absolutely. And the, the fascinating part, and that's why I keep referencing Google Scholar, because this is for most people such a stretch, something they never heard of. And we trust the medical establishment. And I, I get anxious about this because it's not a medical condition, right? And in a lot of countries, in a lot of cases, the person who gives you glasses isn't necessarily even a doctor, but yet it's masqueraded as this whole medical thing. So you don't question it. Right. So, so people, that's why I like Google Scholar because you need the sanity check. You type in lens induced myopia and there's peer reviewed clinical science in ophthalmology journals going back decades describing how minus lenses cause increasing myopia. Like it's, it's an unquestionable certainty that in, in the more you wear them, and especially there's this thing called hyperopic defocus when you wear distance glasses while you're looking at something up close the light is moved further back in your eye even than when you're using the, the distance vision glass for distance. Hyperopic defocus means that's the stimulus that cause, specifically causes your eyeball to grow longer. What, completely well-known in clinical science, and that's why most people that have had myopia for an extended period of time have seen these increasing diopter corrections from the optometrists. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess that's that word that you just mentioned already, dioptic. That's the the term that's used to mention how strong your prescription is on your lenses, which you said was the minus number. Correct. And actually diopters, just to, to put that in a little bit of a people-friendly term, diopters are just inverse meters. So you can measure how far you can see before there's blur, and you can directly translate that distance into a diopter. So it's not complicated to do, and, and I get into this a lot more on the website. You can actually measure your own myopia very precisely at home. You don't necessarily need to go to an optic shop that'll sell you lenses in order to assess how much myopia you actually have. Okay. And uh, an interesting one for me too is, does short-sightedness develop in both eyes at the same time? So, you know, your left and your right, or your right and your left, will both be short-sighted at, at, at the same amount and progress? Or is it normal that one eye is normal, normally stronger than the other or weaker than the other? Um, there is, that's a, that's a good question. Um, we, we have, all of us have something called a dominant eye, ocular dominance. So there's one eye that's quote unquote stronger, that has greater acuity, that focuses faster, that sees better than the other eye. That's why very commonly, if you look at your glasses, so-called prescription, you'll see one higher doctor number and one lower one, because most optometrists aren't aware of the biological fact that you have ocular dominance, and everybody has a so-called stronger eye. So generally speaking, your myopia doesn't progress at what looks like the same rate because you're getting overcompensated for the so-called weaker eye in the process. Mm -hmm. and Commonly, not in every case because it depends on the individual optometrist, but it's really common to see one high adopter number in one eye and one lower in the other. Yeah. So in this case here, um, we're going to get into the ways to to uh, try reverse things, but could you end up doing individual eye um, 
I'm going to call it exercises or, or treatment protocols to try and help that non-dominant eye so that it, it's a little bit more in balance with the other one? You definitely can. Um, I found over the years, just for a little bit of perspective, I've been doing this for, I want to say 15 years or so, and with a lot of people. So I'm not really particularly brilliant. I'm just seeing what people are doing, what people are trying, and I collect the feedback. That's kind of my role in this whole in myopia thing. I'm just the guy that sits in the middle and hears the stories. What we found is generally speaking, binocular activities, like using both eyes together, seems to be most effective, generally speaking in most cases, though in individual scenarios where you really have one eye that's further behind the other that needs extra work, sometimes a little bit of single eye focus can be helpful. Okay. But, but gener generally speaking, like for most people, if they're wearing glasses, you really want to address both eyes at the same time and realizing that one eye is non-dominant and it's always going to be a little bit slower at focusing and it's going to be apparently a little bit less great at seeing clearly. Yeah. And I guess that's um, what I wanted to also get across is that I can imagine that you, you, you could implement something and your vision starts improving, but it may not be exactly the same. And, and it's normal that it might not always be exactly the same because of that dominant eye. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the fallacies, one of the many things that, that bother me about how the mainstream treats this is just because in, in biology and vision science, the, the concept of ocular dominance is completely well known. So if, if somebody gets glasses, they shouldn't get a high adoptive correction for the non-dominant eye because that's how it's biologically meant to function, right? So when you see these, like especially the first pair of glasses are usually very low diopters, so like one point something. And when you see 1.25 in one eye and 1.5 in the other eye, I'm already like, this guy doesn't know what ocular dominance means, the person who, who sold those glasses. You know, like really basic things where I'm like, we're diverging super fast in the mainstream treatment of this, from basic understanding of what happens in the biology. So what you mentioned earlier about um, the eyeball shape and how it lengthens and shortens. So it's adaptive over time that it, it doesn't mean if you've got a longer eyeball that forevermore that it always will get stuck like that. Does it, it means you can through training, try to change the, the length of the eyeball, so, which helps your focus point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, this is a, one of the, there's a string of arguments that I tend to get from the mainstream and the smarter ones that understand the basic premise of axial elongation, which kind of implies that they have to admit that the glasses cause it, right? Because how else, why else does the eye grow longer? There is actually clinical science studies of the human eye showing that axial change goes in both directions. So the eye is not actually growing longer. Like growing is kind of the not quite the right term. It's mm. just adjusting in length. And when you're when 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 you when you have the hyperopic defocus, then the eye will elongate. And if you have myopic defocus, the eye will shorten. And that's just part of how it biologically functions. And I get sometimes frustrated because I get into these arguments with people in the industry. I'm like, this is not really like a debate. You know what I mean? Like this is biological reality that's been validated as how the eye actually functions. But then there is kind of, I think, a pretty big difference between the retail optometry side of things and then the scientific exploration. Like I'm often quoting ophthalmology journals in what I'm discussing, and that's the, the industry literature. 
which curiously doesn't translate into the retail practice. And so what we're discussing here, how is that different from astigmatism or stigmatism, which a lot of people would also have heard of if they've gone to the optometrist? Um, astigmatism is when a part of your vision, a, a specific axis of your vision has more myopia than the other. So you're getting a correction, you're getting a diopter correction that's more significant along a specific axis of your vision. That's why you always on astigmatism, you have a cylinder number, that's just a, the, the myopia degree, and then you have an axis, like which part of your vision is affected by this. And I have quotes from actual ophthalmologists that are saying that real astigmatism is quite rare. On the other hand, getting corrected for astigmatism isn't that rare because when you sit in that chair, the measurement is subjective, right? Like they're, they're putting lenses of varying diopters in front of your eyes, including astigmatism correction. And they just ask you, do you see better this way or that way? Right. And you just pick whichever way you think, but you're not being told at the time, Hey, I just added some cylinder correction. Do you really think you need this? Right. Because now once you introduce the cylinder correction, you can actually create lens induced astigmatism which is a problem because now when you take your glasses off, not only is the world blurrier, but it's also, you're also getting a weird double vision sort of directional blur, which makes it even harder to function without your glasses. Mm. So maybe let's get into um, how to introduce someone to the concept that they could, as you, as you have in your personal story, go from wearing glasses to 2020 vision. Um, I can imagine even parents listening to this and they've, you know, they're giving their kids um, glasses to wear at school. Is there an opportunity that with their kids, they could already start doing some work so that they could maybe even not have to wear glasses at school? Absolutely. And we're having a lot of discussions with parents. Um, we have a Facebook group that, that I didn't really want to start, but then we put it up there and that's been growing like a weed on its own. Um, there's a lot of parents in there having discussions. We're at like 12, 14,000 members or so, I think, right now. This just happened all by itself. There's a lot of discussion there. The first thing, when, what I say is with, with parents with kids is if there is a medical condition, then, then this doesn't apply. Right? Like there, are definitely, there are definitely medical conditions of the eye. I'm like, listen to your doctor, do what they say, especially with kids be really conscious of what are you actually dealing with? Because I'm not, I'm not one of those people who doesn't believe in modern medicine or medical issues or cures or treatments. I'm only referring to myopia, which isn't a condition, right? So if it's purely myopia and you went to a retail optic shop in a mall somewhere and they said, your kid has a genetic deficiency in these glasses, the first thing I would look at is, I think the first motivation realistically to start doing something about this to make it tangible for yourself is to measure your eyesight. Print out an eye chart. I have eye charts, free eye charts on the website. Uh, learn how to measure with the uh, measuring tape. I have a bunch of explanations on that too. Because again, myopia is just how far can you see clearly before there's blur. So you want to measure that distance, especially with your kids. Make it a fun game. Just how far can you see before there's blur and then write it down into a little bit of a log and then compare it with in natural daylight versus artificial daylight. Uh, after you ate a big pizza and had a Coke and four and stressful day or a relaxing day, and you'll start to see that that number varies quite a bit. And what I found over the years is what gets people into this more than anything else 
is taking that action of measuring niacinite and realizing how much it varies, right? Because that takes it from this hypothetical discussion and there's clinical science and all that to actually experimenting and seeing what affects niacinite. So when your kid spends three hours playing on a smartphone and afterwards you measure the eye chart, you will see a notable degradation, which is the ciliary spasm, right? And when you have these data points and you can start saying, okay, that's too much of that. Right? Like we got we to gotta slow down on the smartphone games and then compare those measurements. They're going to start improving. The more you take away that screen time, the better the, the vision will get. And the more you introduce distance vision time, the better the vision will get. And especially if they're wearing glasses, not wearing distance glasses during close-up is a big help in not having the myopia increase. Yeah. Right? Because that's the distance glasses is the hyperopic to focus and close up. And that's really the main driver that makes, makes myopia progress. Mm. I like what you've just mentioned there that um, it's the eye testing yourself is empowering and you can actually do that at home. And I, I could imagine where parents who are concerned for their children, and, I mean, we'll get into adults wanting to help themselves too, but um, yeah, that could be such a good feedback loop where you can educate your children to say, this is why mommy and daddy are talking about screen time. And we only want you to play on your device for so long or look at your device for so long or something. And you too can also see, Hey, it does actually make it harder for me to see. Um, yeah, I think that could be very empowering, very educational for both the child and the parent to go, Oh, that actually makes a difference. So what you were just talking about there too with um, dietary stuff, do, do you find then that that does make a difference to your vision, what, what you eat? Um, to, a, to a limited extent. Um, what I, why I said pizza and Coke is because insulin spikes aren't really great for your vision. Mm. You're not going to reverse myopia by changing diet, but you can certainly do things that are not a great idea. And for a lot of people, it seems that big insulin spikes correlate with less visual acuity. Mm-hmm. Okay. I also like, because you, you mentioned on your website, and I really, by the way, I have to say for, for my audience that will probably listen to this podcast, well worth checking out the biohacking concept I'm a big fan of, especially you got me when you mentioned experimenting is important to achieve health change, where that's one of my main things. Where I'm, I always say, first, you want to look at the science out there to make sure you're not doing something that's endangering your well-being, and then you got to try stuff. And that's why measuring, I talk a lot about measuring because don't take my word for things, like just quantify. For example, I say, try not to work in an artificially lit room any more than necessary because it's, it really affects your vision. Natural daylight, you can see further, more clearly, but that doesn't really mean anything till you measure the distance, right? Like, and depending on your myopia, maybe you can see 40 centimeters to your screen without glasses. And maybe that's not far enough, but if you open a window, maybe you can see to 50 centimeters and maybe that's all of a sudden far enough. And then you, you for yourself saw, huh, this lighting has a significant effect on my eyesight. And that's the first step in kind of nudging you towards better habits. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, what I like about it too, what we've already discussed is things that someone can do anywhere in the world. Um, it's not expensive testing. You just can put something up on a wall that you can print off the internet and start, um, you know, figuring out what actually makes the biggest difference for you. And I love it that, you know, what, what we're talking about here too, is it could be as simple as just getting some more natural daylight and that can already start improving your vision. Yeah, it does. It does. And it won't, it won't reverse your myopia just to be clear, but it affects how far you can see clearly. So 
do you need to depend on these glasses for this activity is what the question boils down to. And there's a wide range of cases, but when you still are in the pseudomyopia or really low myopia stages, under minus two diopters, you probably don't need glasses for reading a book. And if you're in a position to be able to take off those glasses, you're already so far ahead because you're, you're getting rid of the hyperoptic defocus and you're introducing a natural focal plane back into your life, right? Like you're like, you take the glasses off, it's like realizing it's a crutch. You're like, okay, I don't need these glasses for this activity. That's where natural daylight sometimes is really helpful because it gives you a pretty big jump in how far you can see clearly enough. So it sounds like for most people then who are looking to to change the vision, they're going to be dealing with both that muscle spasm plus the eyeball shape uh, with the lens-induced myopia. Um, how do you start then? Is it literally just once you've done that, we've talked about it now, you have to do the self-testing, but then um, is it just practice taking your glasses off and look spending time away from the screen? Is it as simple as that? That's a start. So the first thing is you can't, you you first have to address the ciliary spasm, that muscle spasm that you get into every single day. You can't improve your eyesight. There's a bunch of stuff online like Bates method and eye exercises and all those things that, that people get initial results with because it helps with the ciliary spasm kind of in a long and complicated way, like palming. Some people are going to get upset at me for saying this, but like these old timey exercises from the 19th century come from a time where a guy realized the ciliary spasm issue, but nobody had screens and most people weren't wearing glasses and having multiple diopters. So he was kind of up to this whole, how can I relax the eye? And there's all this complicated exercise regimen that people get some improvement from, but the improvement is mainly redressing the ciliary spasm, right? So you can go, you try these internet exercises and you go from minus four to minus three and you're like, yay, but you don't get from the minus three to no glasses because you're not addressing the eyeball length only the ciliary spasm. So the first thing is always figuring out, is my muscle locked up? And the easiest way to do that is if you have a reference point, like an eye chart or a street sign across the street that you look at every time you get a chance and you figure out when can you see it the most clearly. Like something that's usually blurry, you have to challenge yourself to see clearly. If you spend eight hours in front of a screen and look at the same thing, it'll be a lot more blurry. So then you know, okay, it's the same me, same person, same lighting, same every, same distance, same everything, but I can't read the thing anymore. So now you know, okay, that's where my eye muscle is locked up. And then you go for an outdoor walk, right? And you go for a half hour walk, read the sign again. Is it more clear? And then with that over time, like it, take, it takes a little time to get to know yourself on that level. But after a week or two of doing that, you realize, okay, if I spend three hours on a screen, I need an hour walk. Just for example, right, to where that, that, that distant sign or that eye chart is at the same clarity that I know I should be at. So you start being able to go, okay, this is how much it takes for me to not go backwards or be in this locked up state. Once you figure that out, you can actually start improving your eyesight. And that's kind of another longer topic of gradually reducing how many doctors you wear. There's a, there's a main stimulus that's you're, you're challenging your eyes with a little bit of blur, right? So, so say, for example, your doctor's a minus four, right? And with a minus 3.75, you can't see 2020. You can see 2030, just as, a, as an example. That 2030, now when you're outside, you can still see everything clearly, people's faces, but like distant, 
car license plates are now blurry. Now you can like challenge yourself and you can clear up a little bit of blur with practice. I call it active focus because there was no term for it, but just the idea of, okay, it's blurry, but if it's not too blurry, I can clear it up. And that becomes the ongoing activity of giving yourself strong enough correction we can see, but a little bit of challenge at the far end and then building a habit around that challenge. And that's, I'm really simplifying this, but in a nutshell, that is the habit or those are the two habits, reduce the muscle spasm and then keep your eye in a state of light ongoing challenge. And yeah, I mean, I can relate to that where um, I'm lucky enough here where I can look up from my desk and see things in the distance. And it's true when, if you've been focused on your screen for so long and you look up, then suddenly something in the distance is blurry, whereas you may have seen it before. And then if you just try really concentrate to relax, which is kind of like an oxymoron where you have to concentrate to relax, but um, then it suddenly can just start coming back in again. Um, and so that is just showing, hey, that's trying to relax that ciliary muscle. And I'm interested, just wondering what happened, what do you think happens at night then when people are using their screen devices, maybe before they go to bed and then they just go to sleep? Does the ciliary muscle completely relax them when they've slept and they're going to wake up with a normal vision again? Or does, would it maybe even still stay locked? That That's the, the one of the main things that, that made this such a difficult journey, it took me a long time to reverse my sight compared to where we're at today, is individual biology varies. And it makes it really hard to quantify something like this in a general answer. What I found is it's not uncommon if you spent a bunch of time reading before going to bed that waking up in the morning, you still have ciliary spasm. It's not uncommon. And I, I used to think, hey, that I sleep and my eyes are relaxed but that doesn't seem to be at least not universally the case. Easy way to check, right? If you have your landmark distance, that eye chart or that sign across the street and you just check it in the morning and then you can start assessing, is this a habit I may need to tweak or address? Mm. And then I'm wondering, is there any benefit then that people, this comes into the lighting effect again, that at night um, there's a benefit then of having a less lit room or house at night just to allow your eyes to relax so if you have been challenging your eyes hard throughout the day that um, don't have the bright lights before you go to bed too because you actually need a darker environment to, to allow your pupils to dilate and the ciliary muscle to relax yeah most likely um, and the problem and one of the other things that 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 i've figured out over time is that in order for you to reverse your myopia, you have to address all these things in a way that fit into your lifestyle habits. Right? Like exercise-based things generally don't work because myopia is not high enough on anybody's list to spend hours a day like working on it. So it becomes one of those things where you kind of use that measuring technique to figure out how much of a bad habit is this? Because maybe you love to read at night and giving up reading at night isn't worth it for you. But maybe you read at night, you do have some ciliary spasm, but when you go to work in the morning, you can take the bus not from the next stop, but two stops away. And you're getting a walk-in with distance vision time. And maybe that's enough to address that ciliary muscle spasm. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of not of realizing what would be ideal, but then tweaking it to where you can say, I can do this every day without it dropping off because it's too much effort. Yeah. Yeah. Building as a lifestyle versus having to dedicate 
time away uh, from your lifestyle, which um, aggravates people. And it's like gym, you know, that's why some people are like, I just don't want to do it. It doesn't fit in with my lifestyle. Yeah. And it takes too much time, to be honest, like you on average vision improvement. And, and I'm saying this for like tens of thousands of people over a decade is a little less than one diopter a year. Right. So that, that's not, that's not fast enough for anybody or for most rational people to incorporate some complicated exercise regimen or even to give up reading at night if they love doing that. So, so a big part of the challenge over this time period has been how do we make this work without messing up how your day normally functions? So it's all little habit-based tweaks, you know, like not reading at night would be ideal, but what can we do to, to where you can keep that habit, but introduce something else, something new that'll, that'll counteract the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just also trying to think here where you have some people who feel that um, their vision is improved through sun gazing. Have you ever come across that concept? Oh yeah. That's a genius plot right there. Sun gazing. No, I'm sorry. Um, again, this is Bates method is the originator of this whole general theme of things. And if people read Bates actual paper, there's a lot of things he never said that so-called Bates teachers today are propagating as the scripture. It frustrates me because there's only really two camps. There's mainstream optometry and online there's Bates method. Those are the two camps, like you're one or the other. And I'm saying neither is really addressing causality. Can we just address causality, right? And if you look at the the cause of myopia, it's the close-up and the glasses. So where in those two causes does sun gazing fit in as far as addressing the causality to reverse the problem? It doesn't, right? And that's how I like to approach problems in general. I'm, I'm a, I invest in businesses and I'm a stock trader. So to me, like... I'm super analytical and I always go at, okay, how does this deal with the cause? Doesn't, doesn't, unfortunately it doesn't. The two other issues with the sun gazing is one, if you like it, if it makes you happy, by all means, shouldn't be done unless we're talking about sunset. Like you don't want to use, like sometimes I, that whole idea gets interpreted in odd ways and looking into the daytime sun directly is a super bad idea that, it's just you don't want to burn your retina with UV light. Like that's no good. Some people find it relaxes their ciliary muscle if they're looking into a sunset. And there's nothing wrong with that. I personally actually love doing it if I get the opportunity to, but it's not instrumental in improving your eyesight. So if somebody says sun gazing improved my eyesight, I'm saying, okay, doesn't address causality. And you're asking people to commit to a thing that is peripheral. At the same time, like I said, like if you love looking at sunsets, I love looking at sunsets. I feel like it relaxes my eyes. That's awesome. Just don't look at it as that's the that's the magical answer. Yeah, and maybe there is it that also if you're looking at sunsets when the sun's setting, it's um, you're practicing distant vision. Then you know, looking allowing your eyes to relax and just stare into the distance, be it a mountain that it's setting over, the sea, a beach, or something. Absolutely. And, and, and I think one of the, the, the biggest challenges is that when we're talking about myopia, what we're really talking about now is screen addiction. Because the, one of the other things I found in when dealing with people is once you say you need less screen time, people are already past it because the screen is more interesting than real life. Like I, I, I spend a lot of time traveling. I spend a lot of time in different places and it's depressing 
how much I see people like out to dinner in a restaurant and every single one of them is playing on their phone, right? Like this is kind of the bigger underlying issue is that we're addicted to our screens and we're addicted to this, this content delivery mechanism and we're unwilling to put in the extra effort to be entertained in real life that's more difficult and less exciting. You know, so like that's, I'm, I'm kind of taking the long way back to the sunset here is anything to get you away from the screen for the extra 10 minutes is 10 minutes in the direction of more distance vision and ultimately better eyesight. Mm-hmm. And I was watching one of your YouTube videos where you discussed about, or I think it was in, in one of your videos where you were talking about the length of time that you need away from a screen can vary for each person again. And you had your own specific time too. Would you mind just bringing up how people would figure out how long they know they need to be away from a screen to help maintain their vision or improve their vision? Sure. And I apologize in advance for anybody who's going to watch my videos. They're just a mild tragedy usually. <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not great at the YouTube thing. Um, for me personally, I've found that three hours of screen time is when I hit the limit of, if I go any longer than that, I'm not going to be able to get rid of my ciliary spasm completely. And after three hours of continuous screen time, I really kind of need an hour of not being in front of a screen. I really do. And, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that is this the case for other people because there's a lot of ways to to segment the time to make it work for you. I've just found for me personally, like if I go past three hours, I just know I can almost feel it at this point just because it's been with me for so long that I need, I just need an hour of being away from the screen. So I spend a lot of time in front of screens, but I have it broken up where I have three hours and then I get an hour away and then I may have another three hours, unfortunately. And then I try to get an hour away and I do this with little tricks like, like, I take the long way everywhere. I ride a motorbike instead of taking the subway. Like I, I, I try to add as many little ways to give me more distance vision time between work time that just continually happens without me having to put in any work. And I mean, that's a good habit too, to break up your the setting habit in a way too, that um, you're getting up, you're challenging yourself, you're moving around, you're getting outside, this whole other like ancillary benefits to just... <laughs> trying to improve your eyesight at the same time there, it sounds like. Yeah. And over time it becomes the one thing that I've noticed people tell me a lot is once you rebuild that strain awareness that has gone away over the years, once you're, once you're doing this, once you're taking off distance glasses for close-up, or you're wearing, if you have high adopter myopia, you need glasses for close-up, but you're getting lower adopters for close-up, right? Once you start doing that, like say you're a minus five doctor myopia and so you'd wear maybe minus 3.5 for close-up. I say in general, like adopter and a half lower for close-up works for a lot of people. If you do that for a while and you adopt better habits and you're starting to slow down with the screen time and, and start like you're walking in the right direction, you cannot go back to wearing distance glasses up close and you can't go back to eight hours in front of a screen because you will feel it. Like you will physically feel the discomfort from all that strain you're putting yourself through that people stop being aware of because they're slowly acclimated to it. And now they don't have that biofeedback awareness anymore that this is really straining my eyes. So you're going to have people who have to work in offices um, close up to screens all day as they work. What kind of solutions? All of them have to quit. <laughs> there quit we go. Immediate. 
No, it's not. I mean, the, the vast majority of people that, that participate in this work in front of screens. I mean, that's, I actually, I think I made one of my tragic YouTube videos specifically about this idea, web developer, I'm in front of screens all day. Can I still improve my site? Mm. And the answer is absolutely yes. And it all, again, it all goes back to, you have to have a reason to want to do it, A, and then B, you have to adjust lifestyle to make it possible. So what I personally did, I kind of figured this out from scratch. So I didn't really have the benefit of understanding the bigger picture from the beginning. But what I've done over time is finding more hobbies that are more interesting than a screen. Because otherwise, I'm continually keeping myself away from a screen. I'm fighting this addiction, which is a losing battle. So for example, like, I mean, this is kind of far out for a lot of people maybe, but I picked up kite surfing. Um, I worked at a job in Florida a long time ago, and I was like, how do I go home and not sit in front of the TV? And there's wind there and there's beach there. And that was still nascent at the time, but there was kite surfing. And that's one of those things where you get adrenaline and you get outdoors and you get learning and you get a new group of friends. And that's actually more fun than YouTube. So maybe I spent eight hours in front of a screen day trading. But then when I was done with that, I really wanted to see my kite surfing friends rather than sit in front of a screen. So I think what's most effective is just to go, okay, these screen hours I can't change. But what can I do with my life instead of wasting it staring at YouTube that could be more interesting? And it's kind of a longer term exploratory thing. Like I remember I took hang gliding lessons and that did not work out well. But it was kind of an ongoing quest of like, what could I do with life? Right? Like, because now we have this luxury of screens that makes it really easy to waste your life by not having your own actual experiences anymore. Right? So be a web developer, sit in front of a screen all day, but then find a way to, to make it worth living that doesn't involve a screen. Mm. And I'm also thinking that then, um, would you say that when you're working on a, on a screen, the problem I found is that you know, the information on the screen might be intense. So you end up concentrating on points like spreadsheets or numbers. And then it, over time, you naturally find your body and your head is drawing closer and closer to the screen as you're trying to concentrate on things. Whereas your HR department or occupational health department at the office will be saying, hey, you've got to keep this X amount of distance from your screen. But when people are concentrating so hard over time during the day, they just get closer and closer to their screen. And is it another way is just conscious relaxation saying, hey, stop getting so close to the screen. You've got to, you know, step back, blur your eyes a bit or something, just change, um, look away. And that's a part of breaking up those hours of concentration. Yeah, there's I, I always refer to ergonomically comfortable distance because you want to measure your distance to blur on a screen. And then you want to buy glasses that give you clear vision just for that ergonomically comfortable close-up distance. And then it becomes it's habit building. Like people are always hard on themselves. They're like, no, I hunch forward. Ah, it's so bad. Okay. That's cool. That's, that's what you're doing today. Let's slowly work on a habit to catch yourself doing it and then not be mad at yourself, but then just sit back again. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's never perfect because I look at, sometimes I look at charts and there's so, so much going on that I end up moving forward, but then I catch myself and I go, Hey, and then you move back. And again, you move back to a point where there's a little bit of blur and then you challenge your eyes, right? And you just added that minute of a positive habit to your life. Like you're slowly changing the direction. Like this whole eyesight thing is like a tanker. Like you can't change it in a day. 
like all this internet stuff of hey, a better vision on a weekend. It's not possible, but just like a tanker, you want to realize you're going to make small adjustments over time that kind of pull you in the right direction. Mm. And again, here at the end of the day, you got to have a reason to do it. Like if you're, if you're picking up a hobbit, a hobbit, <laughs> you could pick up a hobbit or a habit, a hobby that, that, promotes your distance vision, then you're going to want the distance vision and then you will improve because you need it. You use it for something. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then I'm also thinking where people, what I, um, you kind of brought it up a little bit earlier was that challenge with the license plates. So even if you're doing some driving, you could start challenging yourself to see how many cars ahead can you see the license plate and sort of have a game like that to see, are you improving? For sure. And the more you're building those habits, and that falls back into parents with kids games, kids can be a great tool, not just to improve their own vision, but for you to improve yours. Because if you come up with games of reading the license plates and traffic, very often the kids will be the ones bringing up those games and forcing you to play it and keeping you from, because your kids, your kids take after you, right? If you're lazy about it, then your kids will be lazy about it. So the kids sometimes can be an inspiration for you to go, I have to improve my sight. Because otherwise, my kid's going to go, whatever, this is nonsense, right? And kids love to play games. Like, I have a three-year-old, and he's not allowed to play with phones. We're not playing with phones, but we're always doing distance vision stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, kids keep you young. They definitely challenge you and, and remind you uh, <laughs> what's, go what's going on with your body. And uh, your vision will, will be one of those. Um, what do you think about then supplements for eyes? Because that there's a, a big market out there about taking certain types of supplements for your eyes. What do you feel about those? So the, the nmiopia.org I checked last year had about 1.2 million regular readers. 1.2 million. I couldn't believe it because I don't really look at stats and all that stuff. I don't really care. But I was thinking I could make so much money selling supplements. It'd be amazing. I, and I'm, I'm joking here. And I actually just made a video today making fun of eye vitamins. It doesn't work. It, it, and actually, I literally, this, this question, I made a video, an eight-minute video today discussing why eye vitamins are not a functionally worthwhile proposition. And the, the short version of it is, if you have nutrition deficiencies, you should address those, right? Like, go get a blood test vitamins, minerals, check all the panels, figure out what is actually wrong and then fix that because your whole body is a system, right? Like there's no, it's not just your eyes. Like if you have vitamin deficiencies, you're affecting other parts of you. Address those. Specifically only for the eyes. Yeah, the vitamins that play a role. Absolutely, for sure. But it is fairly unlikely that you're going to address myopia. Again, remember causality, right? Like the, the eye vitamins are not going to change your screen time and the eye vitamins are not going to help with the hyperopic defocus you're getting from the minus lenses. So they're, they're a huge business. There's major companies selling eye vitamins. I'm sure I could make a lot of money selling eye vitamins, but I just tell people you don't want deficiencies in general and to improve your myopia, just address the causes. Mm. We mm. all wish there was a magic pill. If you eat this pill, you know, and I could sell a lot of those pills because you don't have any real responsibility afterwards. You're like, hey, these vitamins are good for vision, science says, and I'm going to sell them to you and then people buy them. And then it's kind of like one of those, maybe this will do, right? It kind of keeps us from really addressing the problem. Mm -hmm. But 
when you were talking about the spasm too, something I was thinking about was um, supplements that people can take to help muscle cramps in a way. So your magnesium is one example there. Um, do you think there's any benefit then for people who um, might take something like that that would generally help muscle relaxation, like a magnesium? Would that even improve the muscles in the eye? It it's very well possible. And again, this is why I don't I don't I don't say eye vitamins don't work. I'm saying if you have a deficiency, it's going to manifest elsewhere as well, mm. right? Like, so it's not about eyesight. Like if you have a concern about a vitamin deficiency, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutrition expert, and I really am not. Um, I, my personal, what I personally did for myself is blood panels. And I had, I had a serious vitamin B deficiencies that I was never aware of. And then I went and addressed those and systemically, I improved all kinds of stuff. I had some zinc deficiency and actually I couldn't lift weights. Like my, my joints would hurt for days. And I took some zinc for just a week or so and I've never had that pain again. Fantastic. But I look at that as more systemic. Does your body need vitamins and minerals? Are there things missing? And I'm a big fan personally. I'm not saying this is the right or the wrong way. I love black blood panels because I love to quantify what does the data say? And especially before and after, like I took a bunch of B vitamins and I took another blood test to see like, did this, this level things out? Um, so I'm just saying this in my experiment experience, vitamins alone haven't really had the desired outcome of not needing glasses anymore. Yes. Yeah, so they haven't moved the needle. The return of investment hasn't been the, the, the greatest compared to the other things that uh, the other habit changing um, things that you've had to do. And I'm an idiot because I could sell eye vitamins along with all the actually functional advice and make a bunch of money while also helping people. But I just feel it wouldn't be super honest because mm -hmm. it just doesn't, you know, you're spending money on a thing that I don't know what the return is on it. But already and you, the tip you gave earlier about having a home testing kit yourself. I mean, if someone really felt that it was making a difference, a certain, a certain supplement, then they could try quantify it through the eye chart, I guess, as a way to say, see like, oh, actually, I do feel a difference. Well, I have noticed since I started taking this for the last 30 days, it's making a difference. Um, it would just be another data point that they could work from. And um, for sure. And I would encourage that. Absolutely. Mm. Because anything that gets people to investigate the eyesight, all roads lead to Rome on this one, right? So if you're, if you're trying with vitamins first, by all means, I'm not dissuading you. All I'm doing is saying that wouldn't be my starting point in my experience to most efficiently address the issue. But mm. if you if you love it and if you think that there's an issue there, by all means, because whatever gets you measuring gets you on that road. Yeah. And what your the tips you already gave there, I, I would agree, you know, there's other actionable tips to do before you even get to that stage. Um, that's going to give you the the improvement that people are looking for that time away from the screen just trying to look into the distance for a while built um doing a walk where it's forcing you to look in into the distance at times um those habits there are, are going to be stronger than taking a single supplement supplement but still abusing your eye focus time uh through a lot yeah. of screen time can i come back on your show though if i ever start a supplement line and kind of change <laughs> this whole thing yeah sure no problem bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what about exercises too? So there's, I've forgotten who it was. There was one particular person I saw online and they did a lot of trampoline exercises too. And they said that it helped improve their eyesight. 
Do you have any um, thoughts about that, like people doing repeated work on trampolines or certain types of exercises in the gym to also improve their eyesight? So I have the, the, the only benefit I have is of having the insight of a very large group of people over a long period of time. So where we are at today is based on a lot of trial and error from a lot of people. This isn't my invention. Like I'm not even that instrumental in it other than I'm kind of the librarian of all these ideas. And people have tried a lot of stuff, right? And let's just like what you said about the vitamins. If somebody insists it's a good idea, have them try it. And ideally it's somebody who's in my feedback loop. So then I hear about it. And then if it's, if it, worked out well for them, then I share it with other people and then they try it. And that's kind of how we experiment in an increasingly larger group. If, if it passed the first group successfully, then it goes to a larger group and it goes to a larger group till eventually it becomes part of the overall approach if it's that effective. I have to be honest, and I haven't done a trampoline experiment. I don't know. There's nobody, nobody has come to me and said, this made a difference. And especially... I'm a big fan of measurable results. If they say I was at a minus four, I did nothing else except jump on the trampoline and I got a minus 3.25 now, the trampoline is getting investigated. <laughs> my, my hesitation there would be, how does it address causality? That's always my question because like I have limited time, like this is not my main job, right? I do a bunch of other things. So I'm always looking at how much of this do I really need for it to be effective? And that's, I'm trying to translate that to, to people that, are following the same path. I'm assuming you're busy, right? So if I don't have to tell you to buy a trampoline, I'm not going to, right? Even though I find that really works well for the marketing sales tactics, the more specific your approach is, the more special juice you have in there, the more people trust you. But it's just, I doubt it because it doesn't, I don't see how it plays into the causality thing. On the other hand, I found a large amount of people having success with a lot of random things that tended to boil down to less screen time, right? Like if you love the trampoline, like setting it up, tearing it down, playing with it, cleaning it, playing on it with friends, how many hours does that add that you're spending in distance vision that could have an effect, right? So I'm, I'm more inclined to lean in that direction. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it does sound like that. It's just that focal length time that if you spend more time away and and is... Do you think then there's also benefit when you're looking into the distance that you, you move between, say, you look down and you can see down the valley, but then you look close up to a tree to then look down far away the, the valley again and, and sort of move between something that's a little bit closer, something that's a little bit further? Sure. And I think then the natural movement is ideal. One of the things, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story I shouldn't tell. There are people that, that do exercises on my charts. They specifically sit in front of the eye chart and they try to read the smaller and smaller letters. And in an unusual amount of people that has caused faster improvement than the average. So it's one of those things where I'm like, there's something to this that seems to work. There's also downsides because I've had people tell me they're now seeing eye charts when they close their eyes to the point where it's, it's not even funny, but it's actually frustrating to them. And I'm like, okay, so that's not great. So I don't, I don't promote this sort of thing. But I have seen various different strategies where people have really spent time on an activity that just boils down the mechanism, right? Like challenging your eyes improves your vision. So I'm going to challenge my eyes more and I'm going to improve my vision more. But what I found, and the reason I don't promote these kind of things is 
weird side effects come up. And when you stop doing it, you stop benefiting from it. So I'm a big fan of try to address the lifestyle to introduce more distance vision that you actually use. Like in the example of, like I spent time in Bangkok and I bought a motorbike that I keep in Bangkok, which is asinine and silly, but it prevents me from using the subway where I be, I'm prevented from using my phone. I have to drive through traffic and I really have to use active focus. And where I stay and where I work in a coffee shop is on the opposite end of town. Specifically, so I get half hour, 45 minutes of, I'm going to die if I don't use active focus well. Again, this is also something I wouldn't recommend is maybe on the opposite end of that spectrum. But I'm introducing natural active focus time because over the long run, that seems to be the most effective thing over an exercise. And yeah, and you can do that from at any age. That's something that I look at at sustainability. So, you know, if you're in your 20s or you're in your 80s, um, that activity there, that habit, is what's going to help you with your with the uh, improvement in your vision. Because I'd be interested then if someone is listening to the show and they're in they're an elderly person, you know, they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Is there any benefit for them doing this kind of work too? Well, I have friends in their 70s who really resent being called elderly. Mm, yeah, I was uh, I was trying to be delicate there. I know I probably I probably uh, messed up there. I'm always I'm almost in my 70s too. Um actually there's a guy that I made friends with that I really like a lot. British guy. He kite surfs in Vietnam. Half the time he seems to be in Bali doing yoga and the other half of the time he's kite surfing in Vietnam. He's in his 70s. This dude is insane. And he told me he started in his 60s. And he's not like some kind of marathon runner or something before then. He was just a guy. And I like telling the story because I know this guy well. I know he's not a super athlete. I know he's not special. He's just a guy. And he said to me, I'm going to go downhill if I don't find something to do. And he picked up kite surfing to prevent the aging process from going too far down the hill. And he's, he's out there for three hours. He kites longer than I do. And I'm in my forties. He's just, and when you see him walking down the beach, like until you see him up close enough wrinkles in the face and all that, he walks like a much younger man, you know? So I think, yes. Okay. So if you're in your seventies and you didn't take that route or you enjoy a more sedentary lifestyle, I have no judgments, but even then, like there's all these people that, that not all these people, but there's several people that that I've met that really got into bird watching and they traveled to these places where the birds are really fascinating. And then they met other people that bird watch and then they do this stuff together. So I think there's a really, really wide range of things to do. And I think the big common denominator is if you take the screen away, you're going to have to find a way to entertain yourself otherwise. Mm. And to Mm. me, that's kind of the central part of the puzzle. If you don't have this thing to distract you, you're going to find something, right? And a lot of times the excuse of, oh, there's nothing to do kind of starts with the screen is an option, right? Yeah. For me too. Like I was waiting for us to have a chat and I'm like, oh, maybe I should check out Instagram. Just terrible, you know? Like there would be tons, like your brain would be fed with all this like imagery that, that would be entertaining to you versus sitting in a room, you know? It's, that's the battle, I think. Uh, definitely i mean um you know our, our eyes are an extension of our brain you know um i tell people to you know your eyes are actually brain tissue the neural tissue 
So um, they are, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, devices are geared to changing your psychology, your brain health. Um, so yeah, they are meant to be addictive. That's the way they're designed to be. It's it's a challenge, you know. And it's going to be forever more. That's just the the world we live live in now, the modern world. So we have to learn how to how to work with these things. Um, I'm just we're coming up near the end of uh, our, our chat here, but. If someone wanted to implement some of the suggestions that you have with uh, your program, then how long do they have to wait before they may start seeing a change in their vision, a positive one? Um, there's a there's an upfront learning curve. The best way to start is I have a seven-day email guide, and it's broken up into seven days because there's plenty in each individual day, like teaching you how to measure, teaching you how centimeters convert into diopters, some of the stuff we already touched on, like how to deal with close-up and distance, some of the biology basics I think is a good starting point. And from there, there's a ton of stuff on the site to learn. And I'm kind of in the process of working on finding ways to condense that because the way it all works is it's all free. Like the, all the things I've learned over the past decade and a half, I put in there for free. Hundreds and hundreds of articles and how-to guides and stuff. And sometimes people get annoyed with me at the volume that's not organized. So I apologize in advance to any of your listeners who go there and go, what in the world? So there's a learning curve. But I think reasonably, if you just say, I'm going to add this to my list of things to explore, figure about a month till you're at a point where you understand your eyesight better than your local optic shop does. I think that's goal number one, is that you know more about your eyes than the people that keep you in lenses, right? And from there, you should improve like initially, there can be kind of a big improvement, which is mostly from the glasses are too strong anyway and the ciliary spasm. So on the site, you'll find I, I try to post people's improvement reports a lot, and there's hundreds of them. You often find that somebody improved a, a full diopter in 90 days. Not that uncommon. But that's not really like a, a realistic goal. It's just in the beginning, you realize you're overcorrected. You're wearing glasses that were too strong. You fixed your ciliary spasm and maybe went from a minus five to minus four, which is super encouraging, right? Because you saw possibly, not necessarily, but possibly a big jump. And from there, most people improve at a rate of about a quarter diopter every three to four months. And this is a really, uh, that, that number is really commonly the case. Like it, it's in a wide range of people, that's about what happens. Every three to four months, get your wallet ready, you're going to buy new lower diopter glasses. And two pairs, that's the worst part, is you're buying a lower glass for close-up and you're buying lower glasses for distance three to four times a year. So if you're dealing with a local optic shop, they're going to love you a lot because you're going to be their best customer. But also you probably want to investigate either getting deals with them, right? Like getting better prices or possibly buying online. I'm not a big fan of buying online, but you, you're going to make a lot of reductions, three to four for years is completely normal. Mm. Yeah. And, and also um, fun. Like, and because the other thing, and this, this topic could go on for hours, is every diopter that you're, that you're lower, the quality of your vision improves dramatically, right? Because high adopter, like if you take off your glasses and just hold them just like a, a couple centimeters in front of your face, you'll see how much smaller the image gets immediately and how distorted it gets. That's one of the price to pay for minus lenses is they're, compressing the image. So if you have a high diopter myopia right now, you're not seeing the world the way it really is. You're seeing a smaller, scrunched version of it. And every diopter that you reduce, the world becomes notably larger. 
right? Like you see more clearly, you see better. It's worth every doctor that you're improving. Unfortunately, it just means buying a lot of glasses along the way. Well, I, you know, I, I, that's just the price we have to pay, I guess, sometimes to know that we're getting better and that's a good better. So it's a good price. Um, Jake, if someone wants to find out more, um, do you have then, you've got your website, which we mentioned earlier and you can mention it again, but also if there's any other points that you say um, you want them to follow you on certain social media accounts or other places, um, are there any particular links you want to share for listeners at this point? I appreciate that. I, I want your listeners to definitely not follow me on social media because that's just screen time. time on social media. Yeah, I do have an Instagram and it only exists the idea was to promote ideas to live away from screens. And if people are already on Instagram, I figured maybe that'll be a place to tempt them away from Instagram. Don't follow me on it. It's not that interesting. Um, I would do the seven-day email thing casually. Take your time with it. We have a pretty active Facebook group that I would say maybe join after you do the email series. We also have a forum. If the Facebook group is too scattered for you, that's more focused conversation. Um, I would look at it more of as a, just like a longer term, I'm going to learn about mice, right? Like if that's your goal is I'm just going to understand my site, you're, you're on a great start. And then NLP is a really good destination to, to answer a lot of questions that you're going to run into along the way. Mm, perfect. I think that's, we have a YouTube channel, but that's also a terrible tragedy. Um, you'll find it on the website. You can just listen to the audio only. I try to do more of that since people say they prefer not to read but just a site in general. Yeah, perfect. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes. But I just want to say thank you for all the points that you've shared. I really enjoyed that. I mean, there's so many actionable tips and that's always what I love when I get to speak to guests um, who can just share things that, again, anyone listening anywhere right now, be it a main city, a rural place, anywhere, any country that uh, they're able to implement things today themselves if they wanted to. And you definitely shared those points, I feel, today. Cool, awesome. And for my listeners who generally like to listen in on these podcasts too. Can I just ask one question? Mm -hmm. you, sure. you tried the carnivore diet. What was your, what was your take on the whole carnivore thing? So with the carnivore diet, uh, yeah, that was a, a good experiment that I did. I, I did a strict carnivore myself um, for 30 days back in January in 2018. And yeah, I'm always looking at different options. You know, I, I feel there's people need to just know what are the options out there that suit their bodies best. And I just wanted to know what's it like to eat only meat for 30 days. And it's sustainable. You can definitely do it. And there's a lot of people who are thriving doing that too. And there's probably multiple reasons why that's occurring too. Um, and you'll probably find that people will be using the hashtag um, hashtag meat heals and they'll be talking about their vision in there too so you may may find uh, some stories out there about people who said hey i adopted a new way of eating and my vision changed um and it, it could uh, could be like you mentioned earlier is it a nutrition thing is it an inflammation thing is what is it who knows um but yeah it it could could be helping certain people but overall i would definitely say if someone is interested in in different ways of eating and they are having problems and that's usually why someone has a diet it's either for managing weights inflammation pain something um the carnivore diet is an option to try it out um i would 
I, I still think of it as a very good entrance to as an elimination diet. So if you're going to cut everything out, even vegetable matter that could be stimulatory for inflammatory conditions, just try meat for 30 days or 14 days and see if you see a symptom change. And then thereafter, you'll start learning about yourself and you can start adding in certain elements. So it's a very easy baseline. And again, if hopefully most people are, can get access to meat and they can do that anywhere in the world. Um, and I, I do think there's a lot of malnourished people in the world, you know, from a protein aspect. And, and especially as we age, um, we, we, we actually need more protein as we age. So I, I think it's a healthy option. Um, it just depends how long you want to be strict or how far you want to go with it too. Yeah, I'm going to explore that some more because I, I keep getting into these conversations with people, but I haven't yet tried it myself. So that's kind of one of the, the things on the list to experiment with. Yeah, and yeah, uh, I'd love to be able to experiment with all different kinds of diets, you know. So imagine that you, you'll probably find certain people, if we, we tie this back into vision, that maybe certain people thrive on a vegan diet, um, a particular type. Like I've had one guest, she's keto vegan for type 1 diabetes, and that's the best thing for her to manage her diabetic um, symptoms. Um, and she's thriving on it. But it's, you know, it's, it's also it's very difficult because there's challenges in, in that alone being vegan too you know so i kind of look at it as one swing on the, the on the meter to the other swing which is all meat too um yeah we've just got to play around and see what suits our lifestyles um what makes us feel good you know listen to the subjective in your own body do some objective testing like with the eye tests um, or other symptom matters and yeah you're just going to find your way in life that suits you best and that's ultimate goal is just be the best person you can be because you you know you're not there to change the everyone else you're just there to live the best life you can live yeah for sure mm. cool excellent i like it yeah i'm going to direct some of some of my readers also to to your resources because i really like this quantified approach and testing that you don't necessarily have to try everything yourself without some some insight from somebody else who's already been there yeah and that's exactly like what you were talking about in your Facebook group there, you know, just listen to other case studies. I do, I know in science, um, it's all about double-blinded uh, RCT controlled trials seen as the be all and end all, but it's just one level of evidence. Um, case studies, N equals one things. You can listen to pattern recognition. If you keep hearing the same thing over and over, there's something to that, you know, or um, yeah, and you can start seeing, hey, this kind of person, the, this demographic, they seem to respond really well to this situation. And I feel like I've, I'm a part of that. So it's, you know, and then you look at benefit risk ratios and say, hey, what's the risk of just eating meat for 30 days? You know, I'm not going to, it's not a high risk situation, um, typically for most people just to have to do that for 30 days. And you may notice a substantial change or you may notice nothing, but at least you're empowered with that information. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm, perfect well again jake thanks so much for your time and um i'm sure people are going to love this episode awesome thanks so much for taking the time i really appreciate it it was a great chat yeah.